Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Jason Russell are principals of Resolve Asset Management. Due to industry regulations, they will not discuss any of Resolve's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by the principals are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Gestalt University. My name is Rodrigo Gordillo, managing partner of Resolve Asset Management. And today we have a wonderful interview with our friend Rob Garver. And you know, when it comes to Rob, you really can't read, watch, or listen to him for any length of time without recognizing that he's done a lot of thinking about the problem of uncertainty. Traders will connect with Rob's story of experiencing a large and unexpected loss that led him to question whether his models were in sync with the current market environment. The experience contained a silver lining, however, as it prompted Rob to formalize an approach for analyzing what to expect from strategies in different market environments. Rob shared his thinking and his findings, which many listeners might find quite surprising. Rob has thought more deeply than most about how to design portfolios that are most likely to perform out of sample. In this episode, our CIO Adam Butler discusses how Rob thinks about the construction of strategic policy portfolios, but they also do a deep dive into quantitative strategy design. It was especially fascinating to discuss Rob's recent presentation on the three Judases that caused many systematic strategies to fail in live trading. Rob is an open book and generously distills mission-critical wisdom from decades of trading into digestible nuggets that will add value to almost any investor. Without further ado, we hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, welcome to Resolve's institutional podcast. Today, I am really excited to have Robert Carver on as a guest. Some of you may recall that Robert delivered a webinar on portfolio optimization under uncertainty a few months back, which was extremely well received. Most of you probably know who Robert is, but for those who don't, Robert's an independent systematic futures trader, writer, and research consultant, and is also currently a visiting lecturer at Queen Mary University of London. Formerly, Robert was head of fixed income and eventually a senior research fellow at MAN AHL. He's the author of Systematic Trading, a unique new method for designing trading and investing systems, and Smart Portfolios, a practical guide to building and maintaining intelligent investment portfolios. Robert has a bachelor's degree in economics from the University of Manchester and a master's degree also in economics from Birkbeck College, University of London. Rob, welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Adam. It's really good to be back here with you guys again. Yeah, I think this is going to be a lot of fun, and I think we've got lots of really interesting ground to cover. So maybe you can start off just by giving a brief introduction to your career trajectory. I know you spent some time at Man AHL. What did you do before that? What did you do at Man? What have you done since? I sort of started off my early career and not in finance at all, working in the Middle East, which is where I was actually brought up as a child. And then I came back to the UK when I was in my early 20s to go to university, did a degree in economics. My first job straight out of university was working in investment banking as an exotic fixed income options trader. I did that for a couple of years. And then I 
we're spending a couple of years doing something different again, which is working in a uh, economics think tank. And at that time, I also got my master's degree. And then I was very lucky to get the job with AHL. My first job with AHL was putting together a new type of strategy for them, which was a systematic global macro trading across all the asset classes. And then a few years in, they restructured the research and portfolio management teams, put me in charge of the fixed income portfolio. I ran that till 2013, and then uh, decided to sort of head off on my own, manage my own money, spend more time with my family, all the usual cliches. And since then, I've written a couple of books, which you've already alluded to. I do my own sort of independent research, which I blog about on my website, obviously researching the trading strategies that I trade for myself. Recently, the last couple of years, I've also been working as a part-time lecturer. Fantastic. Yeah, you've obviously been keeping really busy. Just a quick audit of your blog, even over the past year or so, you've got over a dozen fairly lengthy articles, some of which we may have a chance to discuss today. I'm going to dive right in, Rob. One of the things that I noticed as I was reviewing your material and some of your older blog posts and your books was this deep, omnipresent internal feeling of this focus on certainty. It infuses all of your writing. It infuses the presentations that you've posted online. This is something that, in my experience, this embedded sense of uncertainty and risk is rarely come to from an academic perspective or from a theoretical standpoint. Usually, people internalize this concept of uncertainty by getting a few frying pans to the face, right? Having some really negative experiences in trading or in some other dimension of your life. Can you point to any experiences or just things along the way that helped you to develop this heightened sense of uncertainty? I think it's something that probably gradually developed over the years I spent working at AHL. And it kind of came to, um, I'm not sure what I call it, a crisis point or a turning point. In the, the last sort of six months before I left, I was running the fixed income portfolio and there was a big turnaround in, in fixed income prices and yields, which those of you who were trading at the time might remember. There was discussion about whether the Fed was going to change its uh, quantitative easing policy. This is the taper tantrum? Exactly, yeah. So there was a big sell-off in yields, I think, from memory, it was 100 or 150 basis points in 10 years over a relatively short period of time. Our strategies were quite badly positioned for that. And so quite reasonably, there was a lot of kind of internal soul searching and head scratching and also external pressure from our clients to say, essentially saying things like, well, we think that something is going to happen where something was usually along the lines of clearly interest rates are going to now rise this is the end of the zero interest rate period that we've been in for a few years now, post-financial crisis. It may even be the end of the massive secular bull run in, in fixed income yields that kind of goes back to, I don't know, like the early 1980s. What should we be doing about this? It struck me at the time that it was a very, that these statements are being made with an almost complete lack of self-awareness about the difficulty of forecasting or predicting. And it also, I also find it ironic that we're working in an organization where we were basically assuming that computer models and systematic algorithms and approaches would do a better job of forecasting the future than we could. But we still felt that we were in a position to make what I guess you could call meta forecasts 
about the actual performance of the trading strategies themselves. So people were, were saying very confidently, well, it's obvious that this will happen. And therefore, it's obvious that, for example, this particular fixed income trend following or carry strategy will do very badly. I spent some time exploring this and discovered that if you actually do this properly as a statistical exercise. So in simple terms, you could do something like say, well, let's partition the past into different states of the world when, say, interest rates were low and interest rates were high. Interest rates are rising and interest rates are falling. And having done that, let's then see how these strategies do. So how does trend following do? How does carry do? How does the short end of the yield curve do? How does the long end of the yield curve do? And obviously, this is quite fixed income specific, but it's something you can do with any strategy or any asset class or any instrument, this idea of take, looking at conditional returns. All trading strategies are based on conditional returns. Trend following is based on the assumption that if we condition on the returns of, say, the last six months, the last 12 months, then we can get some useful information about what might happen next. So I did find, indeed, that if I did this exercise, then an environment where interest rates were rising was indeed not great for fixed income trend following, fixed income carry strategies, particularly in certain areas of the curve. But I also found out that the uncertainty around that sort of central prediction was really large, and that actually you couldn't really see in, in statistical terms any strong evidence that one state of the world was particularly bad versus the other. So to boil it down to an actual, what shall I do about this statement? The what shall I do about this was nothing. Because even if you could predict the future, so first of all, it's obviously really hard to predict the future anyway. That's why we normally let our computers do that for us. But secondly, even if you could predict the future, actually the uncertainty around the performance of different trading strategies in those future environments was so wide that at best you might say, well, I could tilt my portfolio slightly one way or the other, but absolutely is there insufficient evidence to say completely deallocate from X or Y or Z. Yeah. And I see that you've got, I remember reading this last year, but you wrote a pretty lengthy and comprehensive article on this topic. Turns out on my birthday, actually last year, <laughs> 21 February, called CTA Allocations QE meta prediction and conditional return distributions, which I think walks through a fair amount of your thought process and analysis. And probably I would recommend this to readers who want to learn a little bit more about that. So that was an instrumental experience for you in learning about the importance of considering uncertainty in all of our uh, decision-making and our design process and all that sort of stuff. I'm curious because another pervasive concept throughout your writing is this idea of eschewing more formal optimization methods in favor of something that you call handcrafting. Can you give us a sense of what you mean by handcrafting? Yeah, so this essentially is a solution to the kind of classic problem of portfolio allocation, either between underlying assets like stocks in the S&P 500 or indeed between trading strategies. So I'm kind of uncomfortable with optimization as a technique because it suffers from some flaws which are fairly widely known. It's very unstable. So given, for example, quite small differences in the inputs into it, which you know will be mean standard deviations or correlations in the usual model, given quite small differences in those inputs, it produces extreme portfolio weights. 
And the second thing is that it assumes that those inputs are known with certainty. And as we've already discussed, that there's very little in, in finance that we know with certainty. And trying to forecast these things into the future is even harder. There's been a sort of cottage industry that's grown up around making these optimization techniques better with respect to those two problems. But that comes at a cost. And the cost it comes at is a real loss of intuition and transparency into how the optimization is actually producing its results. And one thing I noticed when I was working in the industry was that we typically use one of these techniques to actually work out what our weights should have been in the past when we're doing a backtest, which is a sensible thing to do because, you know, you, a backtest ideally should sort of put you back into history and make sure you only make decisions based on the information you had at the time. And the only way of doing that is to use a method that can be automated, like these complex optimization techniques can be. But then when it came to actually choosing the, the portfolio weights we actually wanted to trade with, we typically use what I'd call, you know, what, what you can rather grandly call heuristic methods. But actually, they're sort of more like rules of thumb. So, for example, if you had 10 assets and they're all pretty similar, then it makes complete sense just to split your portfolio 10 ways. If one of those assets was a little bit different, a bit more, a bit more diversifying, or perhaps you had good reasons for thinking it, it could have a better performance, then you'd give that a, a relatively higher allocation compared to the rest of those assets. So handcrafting was me trying to sort of formalize that process and kind of write down what you should actually do. And the advantage of using this kind of approach is that you can put together a, a way to optimize portfolios that you can sort of do, I like to say jokingly on the back of an envelope, but in practice, you'd probably need a spreadsheet unless you've just got a, a very small number of assets. But the other advantage of that is that because it sort of is using heuristics that humans find intuitively acceptable, and you can kind of explain to people how it's working and explain the components and say, well, you know, the reason it's giving a higher weight here is because this asset has a better expected sharp ratio or has lower volatility or is more diversifying. And you can do that in a very transparent way. So you kind of reclaim the, the transparency and the intuitiveness that a good portfolio optimization process should have. But then you can create the implementation in such a way that it allows for the uncertainty in the estimates, and it also will not create portfolios that are extreme because it's always being pulled back to the idea that unless you have a good reason to do otherwise, you should just allocate your portfolio weights equally. Right. And I remember in your most recent book, you spent quite a lot of time on describing a process for handcrafting a more strategic portfolio for a policy asset allocation, long-term policy asset allocation. And it seemed like you applied this sequentially more granular hierarchical approach. Can you dig a little deeper into how that works? Yeah. So one of the ways to make the portfolio optimization more tractable for a human being is to do it in stages. So if you were to do a strategic asset allocation, you'd want to do that in a top-down fashion. So the first thing you should do is say, well, I'm going to allocate between asset classes or perhaps even between like a super asset classes. So you might want to, for example, lump, you know, bonds and other products that are interest rates related together and, and lump equities with like volatility products like uh, VIX ETFs, for example. But you start at the asset class level 
And that gives you a relatively small number of things you've got to be worrying about. So you might have two or three or maybe four elements in your, your portfolio you're trying to find the correct weights for. And then once you've established what the weight should be at that level, then you dive down into each of those asset classes and say, well, what should the weights be within the asset class, within that element? So for equities, you might say, well, the next stage is I'm going to decide what my weight should be to, say, developed and emerging markets. And then you go down another level. So within developed markets, you then get into regional allocations. And this continues you know, down to sectors, and then eventually you'll be at the point of individual shares where obviously that's kind of the atom in portfolio construction. You can't go any, any more granular than that. Now, this also tends to produce more robust results. So some of the more complicated portfolio optimization techniques that I talked about. So there is one called hierarchical risk parity or HRP. And that does this, breaks the, the uh, portfolio down in exactly the same way. And then does the optimization at the individual elements of which the, at that point there's only a small number. So we know kind of theoretically that that tends to produce better results. You also get similar results if, for example, you're trying to combine forecasts together to predict something. If you do that hierarchically, you get better results, you get better combined forecasts. So it's generally the case that putting things in hierarchies tends to produce better results, but also it means that the, the problem becomes more tractable for a human being, either because they're doing the optimization themselves, which perhaps you wouldn't normally do, but alternatively, the computer's done the optimization, you want to understand how it's done it. If you've just got to look at a at most a handful of assets, then it's much easier to understand that. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. There's a few fundamental assumptions that you make in order to construct portfolios like this without forecasting returns. What goes into that? Okay, so let's just be clear. Generally speaking, I believe that it's pretty easy to forecast standard deviations, which means you generally speaking, you should be using standard deviations as an input into your portfolio optimization. I also believe that it's pretty easy to forecast correlations, although not quite as easy as for standard deviations. And that means, again, you should be bringing those into your optimization although slightly pulling again towards equal weights because the correlations aren't known with such a degree of certainty. The thing I kind of have a problem with is, is the idea that you can confidently forecast sharp ratios to risk-adjusted returns. So you know, to be pedantic, there's a difference between trying to forecast a return and trying to forecast a sharp ratio. Generally speaking, if you think you can forecast risk pretty well, and you then say, well, I can't forecast sharp ratios, I'm going to assume that everything has the same sharp ratio, then implicitly you are going to produce a series of return forecasts, but that's just going to be you know, your, your risk, which you think you can estimate pretty well, multiplied by some assumption for constant sharp ratio. So the reason I'm generally um, uncomfortable with the idea of predicting sharp ratios, certainly as a starting point, is that it's really hard to do. So if you look at the concept of uncertainty measured as in statistical terms, as the uncertainty of an estimate, which you know in layman's terms is basically saying, how accurately did we know the estimate of this thing looking at past data? So not even trying to, to do a forecast. So looking at the amount of error you get when trying to estimate standard deviations, it's pretty small. Correlations, it's a bit bigger. But with sharp ratios, it's really large. So for example, if you were to have, say, 20 years of data and a pretty decent sharp ratio of, say, 0.5, I 
you still wouldn't have enough evidence to say statistically that, that was a positive sharp ratio. It's the most difficult thing to forecast. And it also has the largest effect on the weights of your portfolio. So putting in a, a sharp ratio that's just slightly different in our naive optimization will be the thing that sends your portfolio to extreme weights and allocating everything to the asset that looks slightly better. So the consequences of trying to forecast sharp ratios with a normal optimization and getting, you know, can be pretty bad, I would say, and lead to, to pretty poor outcomes in terms of the portfolios that you get. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't try and forecast sharp ratios. And, you know, anyone who does anything other than buy and hold investing, they're probably going to be doing some kind of sharp ratio forecast, right? So as someone who has a lot of trend following in their system, I'm saying that I believe that sharp ratios can be forecast conditional on whether an asset has moved up or down in price recently. Now, the question then becomes what you actually do with that information. So I've got a, a kind of classic CTA future strategy. And in that strategy, the right thing to do is to basically just use the, the trend as it is, the trend signal, and translate that directly into a position. But in the part of my portfolio where I'm doing the strategic top-down asset allocation, and then saying, well, I'm going to make tactical bets on top of that based on same momentum. In that case, the portfolio is only tilted a little bit one way or the other, depending on, on what the momentum signal is saying. And that's a reflection of the fact that having a prediction for the sharp ratio changes the, the expected distribution of the returns, but it doesn't give you enough information with little uncertainty that you can say, yep, you know what? Last 12 months, equities have been up. Therefore, I'm going to put 100% of my portfolio in equities. The signal just is not strong enough to do that. Yeah. In my experience, I wonder what your experience has been. But when speaking with investors who are just beginning this journey, many start with investigating strategies that are all in or all out. So completely binary. Stocks are above their, the 200-day moving average. So I'm in and stocks are... 0.001% below the 200-day moving average at the end of the month. So I'm going to be all out. Do you observe this, that a lot of people sort of start there with this, you know, you're 100% certain in one condition, 100% certain of the opposite effect in the other condition? Or uh, how did your thinking on that evolve through time? Yeah, I think it's just natural because human beings aren't very good at seeing shades of gray because, you know, we've only evolved really over the last 5, 10, 15,000 years. Before that, we were in an environment where you couldn't sort of go, well, look, there appears to be a dangerous animal running at me across the plane. I'm just going to do a Bayesian optimization to work out the probability that that is, in fact, going to eat me. You just have to make an immediate decision to fight or flee. So our, our brains aren't great at coping with uncertainty with shades of gray. Now, I think that there's a difference between a strategy which you use as part of your portfolio. So you might, as an investor, say, well, I'm going to have a core portfolio with a long-only asset allocation to the usual asset classes. But then I'm going to put maybe 5 or 10% of my portfolio into a trend-following fund. Now, in that trend-following fund, they may well be shifting entirely from 100% long S&P to 100% short S&P, depending on the trend-following signal. But that's only a small part of your portfolio, and it's acting as a diversifier. Now, that's going to be in terms of outcomes and kind of market risk, that may well be functionally equivalent to a portfolio where you're doing the market timing yourself, but you're just tilting. So instead of having a 
5% allocation to the on-off world. So instead, I'm going to allow my own weights to move within a 5 or a 10% band. So maybe you'll go from 60-40 equities bonds to 70-30 or possibly down to 50-50. And I think investors need to understand the, the difference in context between those two places. So just because you read in the newspaper that you know, some high-flying uh, global macro uh, hedge fund trader has, has gone you know, massively short the S&P index doesn't mean that you should do the same because the mandate they have is to achieve absolute return and therefore they need to do that. If they turn around to their investors and said, well, you know, we're, we're deeply bearish and pessimistic about stocks this year, so we're going to reduce our allocation from 60% to 50%, they'd be like, well, guys, we're not paying you for that. We're paying you fees to do the absolute return stuff. We've already got our long-only beta portfolio over here that we're paying much lower fees on. It's not your job to replicate part of that. Right. And of course, investors usually don't know what else is being held by some of these big hedge funds. There may be news that a large hedge fund has taken a large short position in ES futures, but maybe they've also got a large short ball position on somewhere or some other offsetting position that they're using for as an arbitrage. So there's lots of moving parts. And I don't think the human brain is well equipped to think about things at a portfolio level. We sort of as you say, instinctively think about things as being on or off in isolation, but the portfolio provides much broader context that it's very difficult to to visualize or to intuit, which makes this very challenging. Just digging a little bit deeper into handcrafting, I got the sense from your handcrafting series that to a reasonable extent, it relies on very long-term estimates for volatilities and correlations and some I'm sort of broad assumption that they're relatively stable through time. It sort of reminded me a little of that cartoon of the economist with his head in the oven and his feet in the freezer and he's saying, well, in the middle or on average, I'm just right. <laughs> Do you make adjustments? How frequently? I mean, we know that volatility and correlations can be highly unstable. I mean, even over long periods, I'm just thinking back to the 1970s where Stocks and bonds both had a very high positive correlation on the order of 0.5 or 0.6. Contrast that with the recent decade where they've had a reasonably negative correlation. I mean, that can have pretty profound impacts on optimal portfolio construction. How do you think about that? You know, these these estimates changing through time and how should investors manage that? Again, it depends a lot on the context. So let's start with assuming that we're looking at individual instruments. So we're allocating to, to stocks or maybe to ETFs, but not to trading strategies. In that context, pretty much the best estimate of what volatility is going to be in the future is something around a 30-day estimate of volatility. That's what risk metrics use. I use an exponentially weighted moving average of vol with the same half-life roughly. Anything up to about six months back works pretty well. Beyond that, you're right, absolutely becomes more unstable. And you know, in the case of some asset classes like equities, you could be talking about perhaps a four or even a five-fold range in terms of vol estimates. This can make quite a big difference. So for vol, I'd use a quite a short look back. Correlations, I'd probably use a longer look back. I find that the sweet spot is somewhere between maybe six months or a year, perhaps, looking backwards. Less than that, and there's just too much noise. Although the handcrafting method is designed to be robust to correlations moving around a bit, obviously 
you can get sort of brief shocks that temporarily make markets move together when they don't normally or vice versa. And generally speaking, you want to avoid those because trying to trade around them will give you a lot of extra trading costs with no additional benefit. Now, for sharp ratios, I guess it depends on what you're using to forecast them. So the sweet spot for trend following is a look back of somewhere between three months and 12 months, depending on the asset class. So that's how fast your sharp ratio estimates will be changing. So over a year, you might expect your, in a steep sell-off, you might expect your equity allocation to move from kind of one end of your limit to the other, quite plausibly. Now, the picture changes a little if, if we're allocating amongst trading strategies rather than instruments. So the first thing is that the volatility generally is, is something that you could ignore because at least with futures and any product where leverage is to a first order approximation freely available, you can um, scale your the individual elements of your portfolio so they've all got the same expected volatility. So we could ignore that. The correlation between trading strategies is both lower and more stable than it is for individual instruments, generally speaking. So I'm actually happy to use a much longer look back, something like I use about five years, actually, looking at trading strategies. And for sharp ratios, so this is now getting a bit meta, 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 meta again. So we're trying to predict the, the performance of something that in turn is trying to predict the performance of something else. But anyway, I just generally don't do that. So I just pretty much assume that my sharp ratios for trading strategies in expectation are all pretty much the same because, and this is something that Cliff Asnes writes about quite a lot, in general, factor timing is difficult. In other words, dynamically trying to allocate between different sources of return like value or momentum is, is a difficult thing to do. It's really, really hard to do. So I just said, well, actually, I'm not going to bother trying to do that which means essentially that I assume that all my trading strategies have the same expected shot ratio. Okay. So it sounds like there are, depending on the strategy that you're running, obviously you'd have different guidance in terms of how quickly you would want to rebalance the frequency and lookbacks that you use to estimate the different parameters that you're using to form the portfolio. So do you, do you advocate for a more dynamic robust, automated optimization approach for your more sort of faster moving strategies? Do you still try to apply a more manual kind of handcrafting approach to that? Do you mean in terms of allocating across sort of faster moving strategies? Well, yeah. I mean, just your trend following strategies, your carry strategies, that sort of thing where everything is automated. You're able to observe volatility and correlations in real time and apply robust optimization methods to those. Yeah. Yeah. So the in the sort of training strategy world, volatility scaling, as I would call it, in the words, constantly adjusting a position to achieve a, a given target risk, where that risk in turn is coming from a risk allocation, a risk budget, and a concept of how strong the forecast or the signal is. That's happening continuously. So pretty much you could say I trade on a daily basis with my future systems. I'm effectively updating my forecast of volatility every day. And if necessary, rescaling my position to, to adjust for that again on a daily basis if necessary. The actual risk budget then that is given to each individual trading strategy, trading strategy could be something like a moving average on a particular instrument like the S&P 500 future. That is a much more slower moving thing. 
and because what evidence would you have for updating updating those numbers it would be because either the correlation of the individual trading strategies had changed or because the sharp ratio your conditional expectations for sharp ratio had changed i've already said that i don't believe that the last the second of those the sharp ratio is something that's worth considering so then we have to say well given that I've got a five-year look back on these strategy correlations, actually on a month-to-month or even a year-to-year basis, those risk weights probably aren't going to be moving very much. And in practice, I've actually kept the risk weights of my own system constant for the last five years. Although when I was working in an institutional environment, those risk weights would change generally when one of two things happened. Either they would change annually or much more likely in between those cycles there would be some change to the system, so some innovation like a new a new kind of signal or a new market being traded. My research cycle is much slower than that, so um, I'm actually keeping those weights as good as fixed, effectively. Thinking about the, just shifting gears a little bit and thinking about the typical kind of institutional or family office portfolio and how that's evolved over the last 10 or 15 years, I'm noting a large proportion of assets flowing towards private instruments, private equity, infrastructure, that sort of thing. Are you observing a similar flow? And what are your thoughts on private investments? Well, I'm probably not in the best position to judge that. I've only kind of got anecdotal evidence now, not working in industry that I, I kind of gather when I do, when I tell my wife for intelligence gathering trips to the, the nearest local pub. But it's interesting because actually, you know, this is like history repeating itself. Because if you go back sort of 15 years, you probably remember there was a, a big fuss about the fact that the big U.S. university endowments, you know, your Harvards and Yales, were making a big deal about going into alternative assets and in particular hedge funds, but also private assets. Now, as an economist, you'd expect that the return from private assets would be higher than the return from public assets because private assets have obvious disadvantages. They're harder to trade. They're, you know, they're less liquid. There's a lot more information asymmetry the kind of legal and regulatory overhead in terms of, you know, thinking that you're getting sort of a true and fair financial statement is is not as good for private companies. Although we could both quote plenty of examples of public companies, which, you know, went spectacularly bust uh, with uh, accounting fraud happening somewhere in this, you know, recent examples in this country, actually. I guess as a quant, I'm comfortable with private assets because they don't, the data's not there. You know, it's, it's much harder to, to get, you know, a time series of prices for, for a private asset. And even if I, I can get some kind of time series, there'll be a lot, a lot of uncertainty about each of those data points. So it might be that, that, yeah, sure, on these given days, some VC valuation was put in that theoretically gave the company this valuation per share. But what's happening in between those times and whether that really was a true market price, you know, you, you can't say. So I'm naturally biased against private assets from that perspective i mean there's diversification is is the thing you should have in any portfolio probably at least 40 percent of kind of investable assets say in the uk and the us are private so if you don't allocate to private assets you're kind of missing a big chunk of, of what's out there so you're missing a big chunk of diversification and then secondly yeah from a theoretical perspective investing in private assets should give you a higher return because it's going to give you potentially problems and you should be rewarded for those problems. So, you know, I don't see any reason why someone shouldn't put some of their portfolio into private assets. 
I guess the issue then becomes, well, can you get adequate diversification? So as a private individual, you know, let's suppose I wanted to put, I don't know, $100,000 into private assets. Perhaps I can, I can put $50,000 into two companies because a smaller ticket size than that, it's just got, not going to be economic in terms of the legal fees I'm going to have to pay, in terms of the due diligence I'm going to have to do. Whereas, you know, $100,000 in public companies, I could just buy an ETF and I could buy MSCI Global ETF and effectively have exposure to 7,500 companies worldwide. So what's the minimum number of companies for an adequately diversified portfolio of private companies? Is it 10? Is it 50? Is it 100? I don't know, but um, it's probably going to be at least 50 or 100, in which case, you know, you're talking about pretty large family offices. They're going to be at the point where they can they can actually say, well, yeah, we're going to put 10% of our portfolio into to private companies and then we're going to going to split that amongst 100 and we're going to have to recruit like 25 people to oversee that part of our portfolio. Whereas it could be that a large chunk of that portfolio is, is in long-only beta, which requires like one guy to check it every month and maybe 10% is in hedge funds, which requires maybe five people to do due diligence for. So I think you know the standard thing in finance and economics is there is no free lunch. So sure, private assets will probably give you a higher return, but at some cost. Yeah, I mean, the irony is that I struggle to find any literature that validates the view that they actually produce a higher return. Certainly a higher return than you could get by simply levering a mid-cap equity portfolio. And at least you'd have visibility, transparency, and and liquidity. But I mean, after you factor in search costs, financing costs, deal costs. Last year, there was some research done by somebody looking at private equity funds. The basic, I can't remember who did it, but they basically all the, the private equity funds always put up these, these great charts showing how well they're investing their clients' money. But it turns out that actually those are based on some really fundamentally flawed assumptions. And that actually the average investor in a private equity fund has, has lost money. So you know, there is obviously going to be a problem getting this research done because the data is going to be very hard to find. I mean, it would be an extremely costly and expensive exercise to do. So we are kind of stuck with this theoretical and intuitive feeling that, yeah, we, we really ought to be paid more to invest in private assets. But And quite a lot of anecdotal evidence of, of people who've said, yeah, I, I invested in, I don't know, a chain of laundromats and, and now I'm a millionaire. But and, and a few counter examples in the other direction. I personally think that the primary attraction is the autocorrelation of returns. And so you just don't see most of the volatility. But of course, unfortunately, that means that the volatility is being mismeasured and you're loading up on assets that are fundamentally designed to have strong pro-cyclical risk characteristics. So are not at all the portfolio diversifier that you think that they are, especially when you need them to be a diversifier. So I think it's a very misunderstood asset class and very misunderstood investments. And uh, I struggle with it. Yeah. I mean, I'll just make one more quick point, which is that you can think of investing in, I don't know, let's let's pick a slightly more old-fashioned example. Investing in General Electric is essentially the same as investing in about 5,000 small private firms across a diversified group of businesses. If we then say, well, actually... You can kind of back out the expected volatility of uh, an S&P stock, S&P 500 stock, by looking at the volatility of the index and the average correlation of those stocks. 
So if you then do a similar exercise with those, it'll tell you that the expected volatility of those individual private firms is going to be you know, two or three times the volatility of General Electric. So it's going to be a, a pretty high number. It's going to be quite a, quite a high volatility. As you say, it's hard to, to measure in practice and the way that it's measures dampens down the volatility. And you get a similar effect if you if you look at house price indices versus the, the you know the price of an individual house. But I think the risk of these investments is very much underestimated by by a lot of people, definitely. Two quants views on private investments. <laughs> <laughs> Broadening the subject a little bit, what do you see as some of the major missed opportunities for many institutional investors and, and large family offices in terms of strategy allocations or just general investment theses. Most um, institutions, you know, tend to be a little bit kind of followers of fashion. So, at any given time, they're either under or over allocated to a particular theme or a particular style. And in some cases, you know, they've got no allocation at all. So, based on our conversation just now, it strikes me that the average family office has probably got too much allocation to private assets. So the question then becomes: Well, what is it in their portfolio that they, they've got less of an allocation to? You know, the way that these guys tend to invest is counter-cyclically. So they will get out of things that are done badly in the last year. Now, I'm a big fan of trend following, but, but trend following tends not to work very well when you're talking about allocating to, to uh, investment styles. I said earlier that I believe that trying to time factor returns is very difficult. But trying to time factor returns by getting out of the, the factor or the theme or the style that did really badly last year is even worse. Especially toxic, yeah. Yeah. Most likely, investors will not be in trend following. Most likely, they will be out of, you know, well out of emerging market bonds and emerging market equities. Your typical large family office institutional portfolio probably isn't missing a trick in terms of the fact that they, you know, that there are things out there that they've got no allocation to at all. But they are missing a trick in that they, their allocation policy is too time varying and in, inconsistent. It has no you know, systematic underpinning which means that they'll be underweight a bunch of things, which they probably ought to have a higher weight to, because it, it'll be giving them a, um, a more diversified source of return. I mean, you know, theoretically, we should try and diversify our portfolio amongst different asset classes. And then stage two is to say, well, actually, where does return come from? It comes from risk factors or return factors. So therefore, we should, we should try and diversify our, ourselves across different return or risk factors which means, for example, that if you're already heavily invested in equities, then dumping a pile of money into a short volatility ETF is not going to give you any extra diversification. It's the same source of return. It's the equity premium, except because it's uh, you know an inverse volatility ETF, it's the equity premium squared or cubed. So I think part of the problem is that a lot of the literature in this area is quite old now, and it's it's concerned with things like inflation. So you know how the idea that equity and, and bonds are both driven by a few different factors, including interest rate risk, including inflation, you know, including kind of earnings growth. And inflation, you know, is this sort of thing that's not around at the moment. And I think the sort of intuition about the idea that these kind of latent, what I call, you know, very fancy way of putting it, but these, they're, they're latent factors, they're things you cannot see or observe, you can try and come up with proxies for them. But the idea that there should be more than one sort of source of return out there, um, I think, has been lost a little in this world of low inflation, because that, that was quite a good intuitive way of explaining it to people who to say, well, yeah, actually, you know, the, the kind of main risks in the economy are interest rates move, 
inflation moves, economic growth. You want to kind of be hedged against states of the world where inflation is rising or interest rates are falling and so on and so forth. With inflation going away, I think people have become much more focused around the idea of there being one big risk factor out there. What that risk factor is, is flavor of the month changes every week. Could be Trump, could be China, could be Brexit. And they're, you know, they're very concerned about getting their, trying to get their portfolio right for that kind of one axis. The world is more complicated and uncertain than that. And there are a lot of, a lot of axes, a lot of different sources of risk. And you, you know, you've got to try and do the best job you can of diversifying your portfolio across all of those. It really is astonishing to me. I mean, I have conversations with really bright, typically more sort of systematically minded investors just because of the way that we approach the problem. And there seems to be this fairly pervasive view that a maximally diversified, some kind of risk parity or global risk parity type strategy, however you want to construct it. I mean, the, the handcrafted strategic portfolio that you describe in your portfolio, I would characterize that as a sort of heuristic global risk parity strategy. But, you know, we sit down with guys should make QR, quants that don't run risk parity strategies. My observation is that everybody seems to feel like this is probably the most legitimate, least biased place to start for portfolio construction before you begin to introduce active bets. And yet, when we go out and talk to institutions or try to put this in practice, there's just almost no uptake. Where's the gap there, do you think? I mean, I could ask you and say, what objections do they raise to it? Well, I mean, some of it's policy portfolio. But to my mind, that just speaks to the fact that the policy portfolio has been misspecified. Yeah. Right. So if your answer to the question, why shouldn't I do something is, well, because we haven't done it before. Yeah. Then probably you're missing some pretty substantial opportunity. I mean, I do remember um, a few years ago, there was a lot of criticism about risk parity. And I guess in particular, leverage risk parity. So the idea that you could say, well, yeah, the optimal portfolio. So let's just say bonds and equities, inverse volatility, two assets, inverse volatility is the same as risk parity. You're probably going to want something like 70, 30 bonds equities, roughly speaking, in terms of cash weights. And that's going to give you you know, a really low expected standard deviation of perhaps three or four, maybe 5% a year tops. And therefore, assuming a, a sharp of say a half, you're going to get two and a half percent a year plus risk-free, another couple of percent. And for most people, that's obviously way too low. So then you add leverage. So you say, well, I'm going to leverage this thing two or three times. So I, th- I think when people look at that kind of portfolio, they raise a number of objections. And the problem is they, they kind of, they're just pointing at aspects of it and saying, well, I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like that. Um, they're kind of confounding all of their objections together. So some people are naturally uncomfortable with the idea of leverage, which you know is, is not unreasonable. Except I'm sure they borrow to buy their home. Well, exactly. If they own any S&P 500, they've got a two to one debt to equity ratio on average. Exactly, exactly. But the home buying thing is exactly the same thing. But there's a difference between latent or implicit leverage than it's actually you that could be getting a call from your broker saying, I need more margin. So that's fair enough to a degree. But then they also say things like, well, you know, you're allocating 70% of your portfolio to bonds. And we've just had a, a 30-year secular bull run in bonds. Fed's going to start putting up rates. You know, you're basically putting nearly all your eggs in, in a, a basket of assets, which I know for sure is going to go down in price. So 
the problem is the reasons why. Well, how do you address that? Well, you say, well, okay, you can say, well, it's fine to to not have seventy percent in bonds and to get your extra return not through leverage but by allocating more to equities. So you'll get a lower sharp ratio, but you'll get a higher expected return. Now, also, you also need to say, well, you shouldn't put all of your money in equities. And one of the reasons for that is because of the difference between arithmetic and geometric returns. You're then into quite a long and complicated discussion into explaining why why this thing makes sense. Because the, the reasons why these portfolios make sense are essentially because you can predict volatility really well. So the idea of weighting inversely to volatility, a, a risk parity idea makes perfect sense. You can predict correlations pretty well, which means you should have a portfolio that's as diversified as possible. Um, but actually, you can't you can't predict re- returns or sharp ratios very well. And ultimately, if you want high returns, you're going to have to pay for it with increased risk. And that risk can either come from from leveraging up seventy thirty portfolio, or it can come by moving to an eighty twenty portfolio, which will probably have an inferior sharp ratio. Well, it will definitely have an inferior sharp ratio. It may it may even have an inferior geometric return, which means that actually, in fifty years time or whenever you cash in your funds the expected final value of that portfolio will be lower. The concepts that stand behind these portfolios mean that they make sense, A, unintuitive, and B, quite complicated to explain, whereas the attacks that you can make on them, the criticisms you can make on them are very intuitive and easy to understand. Yeah, I mean, we typically start from the place where you started earlier, which is this idea that you're rewarded for accepting risk on growth or on inflation or rates. And so you want to have markets in your portfolio that are fundamentally designed to hedge against each of those major states, right? So worse than expected growth, but higher than expected inflation, or better than expected growth, but higher than expected inflation. Depending on how many ways you want to slice it, there's between four and eight states of the world. And you want to own assets that are designed to hedge against all of those different states. And if you hold them so that they're in proper balance, then your portfolio should be relatively resilient against whatever the market throws at you over the intermediate term. So, I mean, it's funny because you get all kinds of heads nodding there, and then you slowly sort of build into what the portfolio looks like. And that's the point where the objections that you've just described come into play. And it seems like that theoretical basis is is completely lost as you sort of look at the portfolio weights. Exactly. I mean, you, like you can explain to people, look, do you not agree that if an asset is risky, you should have less of it in your portfolio? And yes, they nod. Do you not agree that the portfolio should be diversified across different asset classes and countries and so on? And yes, they nod. And then you say, well, actually, what you should really have is 70-30 portfolio with two-to-one leverage, and they, they freak out. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a really strange phenomenon. We face this all the time, and I'm just I'm wondering... Obviously, you've had similar conversations, which is encouraging, but also discouraging. (laughs) (laughs) I really wanted to cover some of the topics in your most recent presentation, which you've called Three Judases, which I thought was just really creative. And I'm going to link to this presentation in the show notes because I think it's absolutely fabulous. So I want to make sure we do carve off some time to cover it. To start off, I thought you had a really clever way of of attacking this idea of the bias-variance trade-off, and you sort of reframed it as a trade-off between model complexity and prediction error. Can you just talk for a couple of minutes about what that is? Yes. Yeah, so the idea basically is that if you're you're trying to create a trading strategy or something else that's trying to predict you know, the future, 
the first thing that you do in a quantitative world is you get some data and you say, well, you know, what kind of strategy should I produce with what parameters that will do a good job of predicting what happened in this particular data set? Now, when you do that, uh, what you will find is that the more complicated you make the model, the more parameters it has, the more moving parts, the better a job you will do. And, you know, actually, there is a point at which you will be able to predict the past perfectly. To take a, a trivial example, if, if you took a year's worth of returns, you could create a model that said, on January the 2nd, the market will go up, on January the 3rd, the market will go down, and so on and so forth. And you'd have one of those for every, every business day of the year, and you'd be able to predict exactly what had happened in the past, because the complexity of the model was exactly enough to, to do that. Now, the issue, of course, comes to the fact that we, you know, we do not get paid for predicting the past, I'll, not directly at least. Well, maybe I'll move on to that in a, in a moment, but we only get paid for predicting the future. And the way we try and simulate this you know, when we're doing this kind of work is by taking another set of data that the, the algorithm fitting process hasn't seen, which is called the, uh, the test set or the, the you know, outer sample. It's also a common phrase. And then we see how well the, the algorithm or strategy that we've trained on the original data does in this outer sample data. And this effectively is simulating what happens if you, you know, if you build a trading strategy based on historic data and then go out and trade it with real money. And obviously, when you're trading with real money, that's by definition a data set that the algorithm hasn't seen because it didn't exist. You know, it's only in, in the future. What happens here is that as you add complexity to the model, the outer sample performance, to begin with, gets better. So, you know, a very simple model, which just said, go long all the time, is going to do okay in uh, asset classes that obviously have gone up. Uh, if you make it a little bit more interesting and maybe throw in a, a trend-following component or carry or value or whatever, then it'll do do a bit better. But at some point, the, the complexity starts to get in the way and the, the performance of the model actually on an outer sample degrades. So we take the simple example of a, a strategy that had a different prediction for every day of the year, that probably worked really well in 2018. It's unlikely it'll, it'll work uh, as well in, in 2019, extremely unlikely, in fact. So the, the trick is to try and create a model which has an optimal level of complexity. So not so little complexity that it doesn't actually do anything useful, but not so much complexity that, it, that it's no longer robust uh, and is too overfitted or curve-fitted to, to the historic data. And this is a really hard thing to do, because although I said you don't get paid directly for predicting the past, in fact, you kind of do. So if you're an academic researcher and you write a paper that finds some interesting market anomaly and you get it published, you know, you'll get tenure and, and uh, that do well from that. If you're working in a, a quantitative investment firm and, you know, you, you produce a, a back test showing that a strategy has traded successfully, you'll get a nice bonus. And even me just sitting here, if I was to create a, a back test with unrealistically good results, I'd probably feel good about myself. So there would be some, still some intangible benefit from doing that. But when it actually comes to, you know, so there's all these pushing us towards making our models more complex so that we can improve the performance because that's more tangible and can actually lead to tangible rewards. But, you know, more complex models will then do badly out of sample when trading with real money, which, of course, is what people actually care about. So... How does this fit into your framework of explicit, implicit, and tacit overfitting? So explicit fitting is kind of what everyone mostly does. So generally speaking, when you're, you're fitting some kind of trading model, you will 
have an automated fitting algorithm, which could be something very simple like a grid search, could be a regression, or maybe you're doing the, you know, your fitting is a portfolio allocation. So you're you're trying to decide what weights to put on on different predictors or, or different factors or different little trading strategies. In which case, maybe you do a Markowitz optimization or, or something else. The key point here is that the fitting is happening automatically. That means that that you can run it on a pure outer sample basis. So you can run the, the fitting automatically, iterating it forward, ensuring that the fitting algorithm can only see his data that was historic to it before that. So you can do true outer sample tests. And you can also control the degree of parameterization, you know, how complicated you let the model become. There are ways of doing that sort of automatically. The algorithm can, can sort of say, well, how complex can the model be before it gets too complex? So um, it's... It's a controlled process, and fitting fitting gets a really bad press, and overfitting gets a really bad press. You know, this kind of explicit fitting, where it's all being done automatically on a pure out of sample basis, that's the best kind of fitting to do. So this is your typical sort of walk forward testing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, perfect. And then implicit fitting. So implicit fitting is something that I think intuitively most people in this business have. Everyone's done it. I think everyone kind of knows that they're doing it and they know that they're doing something wrong, but it's it's really hard to stop yourself. An example of implicit fitting would be this. So you create a strategy and you, you run a, a proper walk forward back test optimization on it and you get some results. And you look at those results and you think, I think I can improve on this and make it a bit better. I'm going to just change. There's kind of different degrees of this. So a one extreme would be cheating. So cheating would be to say, actually, the best parameter value of the whole sample set is X. Therefore, I'm just going to use X for the whole sample set. So that's that's kind of outright cheating. But you could also, for example, say, well, actually, this I've used a five-year look back here. From, we were talking about correlation estimates. Um, I've used a five-year look back here for my correlation. What happens if I use a one-year correlation look back? You rerun the thing. It looks better. Like, okay, I'll use one year now. You're still cheating because you've, you've still used the whole data set to make a decision about what the parameters should be. You've still done something that, that someone who was doing a truly out-of-sample test couldn't possibly do because they did not have access to all of the data to begin with. And, you know, there's what I would call kind of meta-cheating. So meta is a prefix I'm using a lot today. So an example of meta-cheating might be you actually change the way that the, the fitting algorithm works. So, for example, uh, you might be using a regression technique which penalizes large parameter values where you could change the degree of that penalization to improve your results. So, you know, these things are all cheating. Now, there are ways of kind of avoiding this and getting around it. There are corrections you can do to say, well, and tests you can do to see if it's likely that the results you've produced have been overfitted through this process. But ultimately, there is still one thing that pretty much everyone does, which is that once they've tested a trading strategy and fitted it either properly or maybe a little bit of implicit cheating, they then make a decision whether to actually trade that thing going forwards. And most people do not trade bad ideas. They throw them away. And in doing so, they have effectively, again, committed this crime of implicit fitting because the decision not to trade a trading strategy made with a backtest based on the past, that's not something that, that you could really have done in, in practice. It might be that you don't actually trade your strategy in live trading, but a bad strategy really ought to be kept into your backtest because otherwise your, your backtest is only going to consist of ideas that worked 
which means that your backtest results are going to be inflated. Well, this is the, the whole idea that if you run a thousand backtests that just purely by random chance, 50 of them are going to look pretty good, right? Yeah, yes, exactly. exactly. And, and um, most people are aware that they shouldn't, for example, when they sit down at a computer to try a new idea out, that if they do then do a thousand iterations to improve that, they know they're doing something wrong. Most people that, you know, know enough. But even someone who's really careful and doesn't do that, they'll still reach a point where they, just, they decide, actually, I'm going to proceed with this idea and trade it with real money or I'm going to drop it. And, you know, it might be that your live trading ends up exactly the same, but your historic backtest will be inflated, which means, for example, that you might shoot for a higher leverage target than you should. It might mean that you pay higher costs than you should. But also, if, if you have investors who are, are gullible enough to be convinced by, uh, you know, backtested pitch decks, backtested graphs in their pitch decks, then you'll potentially be fooling investors. And as a result, any investor who's worth their salt will automatically look at a backtested account curve and discount it massively, you know, when it's divide the results by two or by four, because they know it's most likely that even the most, you know, honest and, and good person who's done all the right stuff will still drop a bad idea before they, they actually let it go into their backtest. One of the things you mentioned in your presentation, which caught my eye, one of the solutions to this challenge of implicit fitting, you write, keep all tested strategies in, quote, a fund level backtest and use portfolio allocation, apply selection algorithm. What does that mean? So the idea here is that if I was running a hedge fund and I was worried about this problem, what I would do is every time anyone had any kind of idea, I would but basically keep a copy of that backtest, you know, in some central computer system. And then when it came to saying, well, what's, what are the backtest results for our fund, which is asking the question of ourselves, what money could we have made in the past, given the access to the date, historic data that we had at that time? So that might mean, for example, there's a strategy that was doing really well up till about 10 years ago. And, you know, you keep that in your fund level backtest. And the fund level backtest would then allocate between your, your strategies. And it would look at that strategy and say, well, that strategy looks pretty good. We're going to give that a pretty decent allocation. But then the performance of the strategy starts to degrade. Then, then your, your allocation process will automatically reduce the weight given to that strategy. And it might be that in the present, the allocation to that strategy would be so low that, that you'd actually just exclude it. And this is what I mean by a selection algorithm. So you might, let's say you've got I don't know, 50 different trading strategies. It might be that any one of them ends up with a weight of less than, I don't know, 0.1%. You say, well, it's not worth the, the time and the effort to, to run and monitor this thing. We won't actually trade it. You're basically simulating the real thing that which would have happened, which is that someone would have developed a strategy, it would have worked well for a few years, would have got a high allocation in your live trading portfolio. It would have then done badly. You'd have reduced its allocation. At some point, you would have turned it off. The alternative where you look at the whole backtest for that strategy and say, well, this thing actually doesn't end up making any money. We're just going to delete delete the backtest file, put the documents in the bin and forget we ever did this. That means that your historic backtest, you know, what I call your fun level backtest, doesn't include that, that trading idea, that strategy will be inflated because it is for the last 10 years because it, it won't have the, alloca- you know, the reducing allocation to the thing that was doing badly. That makes sense. And you also mentioned just along the same lines, that context matters. For example, high-frequency strategies, you've got more data, and therefore you can make decisions about whether or not an edge may have substantially degraded much more quickly. But by the same token, that means that those edges will probably degrade more quickly versus a lower-frequency strategy like trend-following, carry, et cetera, 
you've got less data in terms of number of trades with which to make a real-time decision about whether or not the edge has gone away. But because of that, you can't really, it's much more difficult for that edge to completely decay away. It's less likely to degrade. Can you say more about that? So the first thing to say is that the higher the performance of, you know, so economically, you know, if you're making a lot of profit in a particular market, it's likely that competitors will move in unless, you know, there are regulatory reasons why they can't, like, like patents and so on. So you can think of trading strategies in a similar way. So if you find a, a high frequency, and it's likely to be a high frequency trading strategy, if you find a trading strategy that has a sharp ratio of five, it's unlikely that you'll be able to keep that a secret for very long. Other people will discover it. It may be a short-term effect that's leveraging off a particular thing in the market that is going on. It cannot make sense that someone can find a trading strategy with a sharp ratio of five and keep it to themselves and keep trading it forever. They would end up owning the market very quickly. Well, exactly. Yeah. These things get, so essentially, you know, pure arbitrage opportunities that have a sharp ratio of infinity, if you like, are extremely rare and get arbitraged out very, very quickly. And things that are slightly less than pure arbitrage get arbitraged out slightly more slowly, but still pretty quickly. At the other end, you've got strategies like, say, trend following, which have much lower sharps. And one consequence of those lower sharps is that they, there are long periods of time when they're in drawdown and people like write newspaper articles saying trend following is dead uh, and things like that, or value is dead. That's another, another common one. Now, it's less likely that these things will go away because, well, first of all, the reasons why they're happening are probably down to things like cognitive biases in the human brain, blah, 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 things that aren't like to go away anytime soon. But also because the returns aren't that great, not that many people are going to be interested in buying into these strategies. So it's unlikely that they'll, they'll kind of get crowded very quickly and arbitraged out. So from a kind of um, market efficiency point of view, generally speaking, you know, there's a continuum between strategies that probably a higher frequency, probably have quite short holding periods, probably have, you know, you know, have high sharp ratios, but which will be kind of found out quite quickly. So, you know, it might be that you can trade these strategies only for six months before they effect disappears. Or with a small amount of capital, right? And probably with a relatively small amount of capital. And at the other extreme, you've got strategies which trade pretty slowly based on cognitive biases, which probably won't go away anytime soon. You know, you can test them for hundreds of years and you get you, the effects seem to be pretty consistent. And, uh, you know, they're lower sharp ratio. They're probably not going to get crowded out. Now, when you then sort of say, well, okay, how can I make decisions about how to allocate to these strategies? Or how can I make decisions about when the performance of these things is degrading? If you look at the sort of statistical properties of the estimate of a sharp ratio, the higher a sharp ratio is, the more certain you can be about it. You know, if your sharp ratio is really low, you, you, you're unlikely to have enough statistical evidence to say whether the sharp ratio can be positive or not. You need a lot of decades worth of data. And you don't often have, you know, you may have, you may have traded it for decades, that means that you can't look at, say, just the last year or three years or even five years and say, you know what, this thing is definitely broken. There's like a 99% chance that the, the returns over the last five years are negative. It's just extremely unlikely that you'll get that kind of statistical confidence unless the thing is, you know, has been an absolute dog and has just really done really badly. With high frequency trading strategies that have much higher sharps, you've got more trades anyway. So kind of intuitively, that means you've got more data points more quickly. So, you know, instead of having... Uh, one trade a day, you, you know, you're probably going to have thousands or even tens of thousands. The sharp ratios are higher, so there's much 
less uncertainty about whether they should be making money or not. And that also means you can spot pretty quickly whether they've degraded in performance. So the life cycle of a high frequency trading strategy might be something like this. An effect arises in the market. Within a few weeks or months, you have enough data to confirm that the effect is definitely there. And you don't need that much data because it's such a strong effect. You can trade it for three months. Then other people find out about it. The performance starts to degrade. And then, you know, with you can say, actually, looking at the last, even perhaps just the last week of data, it looks like this thing is now has now gone away and is, is no longer there. We can shut that down. If you look at something much slower, like trend following or value or carry, you've got to expand those time timeframes massively. It can take decades to, for it to be clear that an effect exists. And it can take many years or even decades before you have enough statistical evidence to say that, it, that it's gone away. And actually, I did a recent blog post on this, looking specifically at trend following and basically saying, actually, you know what? A low trend following hasn't done great in the last few years, so 2014. There's nowhere near enough poor performance or history of poor performance to say with any statistical confidence that it's no longer a profitable strategy. And that means from a portfolio allocation perspective, at best, you know, you could tilt your allocation away from something like this very, very, very slightly, you know, like from 50% to 49%, that kind of order of magnitude. But you've got nowhere near enough evidence to say, yep, we can bring the, le- the lever on this thing right down to zero, which you could do with a, with a, a higher frequency, more profitable trading strategy. Yeah, that makes sense. Have you read Andrew Lowe's book on the adaptive market hypothesis? I have, in fact. I'm just seeing if it's on the shelf behind me so I can prove it. But no, I think it's on my <laughs> other bookshelf. Yes, I have. Right. Because it, it just rings so, so consistent with some of the themes that are covered in that book. And, you know, it just, we've been internally sliding towards the opinion that the secret to sustainable success in markets is finding a very large number of very weak classifiers or very weak edges and assembling those thoughtfully because the the really great edges are going to be arbitraged away very, very quickly. And the only way that you can take advantage of weak edges is if you include many of them in a diversified portfolio of strategies. And it's just not the type of exercise that most investors can can successfully complete. So I think that's sort of the last bastion sustainable alpha in markets is systematically finding many, many weak classifiers or weak features, and then finding smart ways to assemble those in a diversified way. That actually ends up, I think, being the overall research direction for uh, for our team over the next few years, which actually is a good segue because I was going to ask you, I know you're currently working on a new book. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. What's the new book about? Just along the same lines, any insight on what your research focus is going to be over the next year or so? I would assume it's going to be related to the book, but maybe not. Maybe not, in fact. <laughs> so uh, the book is aimed at a, a more of a retail audience than my, my first two books. So if you think about hard numbers, I think in my first book, the, the minimum example portfolio I, I showed was something like $100,000 of capital. And in this new book, it's $500. So that's the difference. It's focusing specifically on on leverage products. So that's um, futures, margin trading of stocks, FX, and some th- things that aren't legal in the US actually, but that's CFDs and spread bets. But it's basically designed for both the UK and the US audience. So it kind of covers all the bases there. 
And the reason I chose to focus on on um, leverage products is that in terms of doing the most helpfulness to the largest number of people, retail traders generally, where they're getting into trouble, they're getting into trouble with, with these leverage products. It's kind of not that dissimilar from my, my first book in, in terms of it says, well, here is a, you know, a, a systematic way to trade, but there's much more handholding, but, but also answering a lot of questions that creating a lot of fallacies that, that people have generally, but retail traders particularly. So things like, for example, you know, should you trade a particular market? So are some markets better than others for trading? If you look on the internet, some of the kind of uninformed stuff you get on a lot of trading forums, you'll see things people are saying like, oh, well, you should choose a market that, that gives you the right vibes or, you know, all this kind of nonsense. And then I, I look at the um, statistical evidence explain the statistical evidence saying actually going back to the first thing we spoke about which is uncertainty if i if i do a bar chart showing the performance of all the instruments in my own portfolio it looks like there's a big difference in performance between i think the worst performing market which i think was the swiss stock market index and the best performing market which i think may have been korean 10-year bonds now let me overlay that with a statistical uncertainty and actually you can now see that you cannot distinguish between these markets. The uncertainty is too large. So in terms of the question of saying, well, which market should I trade? Actually, expected returns should not come into it at all. You should be looking at things like costs. And as a, a smaller retail trader, you should also be looking at the minimum capital required to trade the market properly. A big theme of the book is, you know, if I have not much capital, what's the best use of that capital? So should I diversify into more markets, for example? You know, should I make my trade move my trading system from being a binary trading system which is the kind of first trading system i introduce partly because it's intuitively easier for people to understand and also because it's it's a better use of scarce capital you know should i use scarce capital then if i have spare capital to implement a non-binary trading system so it's answering a lot of those kinds of questions. That is a very niche book. Very interesting. But it's not what you're focusing your research on. No. So my research at the moment actually is, is not really research. I've got this open source version of my backtesting platform, which is um, called Pi System Trade. So I'm currently in the process of adding to that all the bits and pieces that will move it from being a backtesting platform to a backtesting and execution platform. I'm doing that for two reasons. Firstly, the platform I'm actually currently running my trading on, I wrote about, well, over five years ago now. And it's, you know, it's starting to fall apart through lack of maintenance. And uh, yeah, as, a, as a, pro, a developer, you often decide it's much easier to rewrite the whole system from scratch than to try and fix up what was there before. And that applies even if the person who wrote the old system was yourself five years ago. So, uh, but that's a precondition then for doing more research because at the moment, if I do come up with some new and interesting trading strategies, the old platform is not really sufficiently flexible to trade those. So one thing I want to do is build in a lot of flexibility around things like, for example, trading of multiple instruments, so creating synthetic spreads. So that's one research area I want, I want to look at. And I also want to look at mean reverting strategies because at the moment I've got a big focus on carry and trend. And I'm producing some, um, some graphs for my university course to explain the concept of uncertainty. And I noticed this really consistent effect, which is that pretty much in all futures markets, you get kind of good trends with, with the sort of a three to six month lifespan. But then at the shorter end of things, markets tend to mean revert more strongly. So, you know, over a period of a few days. 
So I need to implement an execution algorithm that can capture this effect, but not get killed with costs. So that's kind of the the research area, but that's probably a few months off because I'm going to have to write a lot of code first. Right. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a pretty common research cycle. We've been going through the same thing for about the last year and a half. You know, we launched a variety of strategies on an older trading and execution platform or infrastructure, and then got to the point where the research pipes get clogged because you can't easily deploy new strategies. And so you've got to revamp the execution and reconciliation architecture in order to facilitate the deployment of new strategies. And so that takes a little while. And then, you know, we're right on the cusp of a really exciting new innovation cycle, I think, but it does take a little bit of indigestion there while you get all the pieces in place to facilitate that. So I think that's pretty natural. That's exactly the cycle as well that I saw in my, at AHL as well. So, I mean, I should say one thing actually, that before uh, this call started, I'm, I am writing a blog post on trend following and skew. I'm going to still do a little bit, these odd bits and pieces on the, the more intellectual stuff when I get bored of writing code. So, uh, so is it on the skew of trend following strategies with different look back horizons and, and observed at different frequencies, that sort of thing? Yeah, exactly that. So the theoretical result you'd expect is that you get positive skew with trend following because it's kind of like owning a straddle. Right. It's a long volatility bet, essentially. Now, and the interesting thing is that you only get that when the the time period you're measuring the skew over is tied into the time period that trend following is happening on. So for example, if you are looking for trends that last for a few months, well, there's absolutely no reason why you'd expect your daily skew to be positive. Because on a daily basis, the skew you're measuring is mostly the skew of the underlying assets. It's only when you get out to maybe annual returns that you see a positive skew. But it, Whereas if you're trying to pick up really short trends, you've got just a few days, which by the way is probably not a good idea because it, it, it doesn't tend to make money after costs. But on a theoretical basis, at least, you can then on a weekly and monthly basis see the positive skew coming in. This is all well known. But the theory I have, which I haven't, I must say, I haven't yet tested. So <laughs> don't, don't write this down, anybody, and trade it. But generally speaking, there has been literature saying that owning negatively skewed assets is profitable. And that makes sense because negative skew is something we want to avoid. So I'm wondering if trend following strategies have a bias towards owning negatively skewed assets because they, on average, go up more. So an example would be the short volatility which is, you know, the most negatively skewed thing you can own. So if you're short VIX futures, a trend following strategy will have a bias towards being short VIX, which means that its daily skew will be pretty horrendous because it'll be basically picking up the skew of the underlying asset. That's the sort of relationship I'm, I'm going to explore and hopefully find something interesting. And have you explored, there's been some papers on the ability for skewness to act as an indicator or as an edge where you want to have an emphasis to be long assets with large negative skew and short assets with large positive skew and measured over sort of intermediate horizons. We've done some research into that that looks promising if you don't define skew exclusively on a traditional daily basis. Have you looked into that at all? I've seen the papers. I definitely think the effect exists. That's what inspired me into this idea that that maybe one of the reasons why trend following has perhaps even negative skew at shorter horizons because of this effect, because it is biased towards buying assets with negative skew. So that's on my to-do list. One thing about this 
is I think they may, it may be confounded with carry in some cases. So if I think about think about it as a time series rather than as a cross-sectional effect. So, you know, should you load up on an asset when its, it's skew is more negative than normal? I think there may be some, and maybe you guys have looked at this, but I think there may be some overlap here with, with kind of value and carry. Because if I think about, say, 2008, where the skew of, of equities and, and short vol was obviously very high, which would have suggested a big long position, both a value and a carry strategy would also have suggested a big long position there. It would be interesting to see whether the effect survives once you, you know, you do your factor regression and throw those things in there. But I'm with you with the, with the kind of idea of adding lots of small things to the portfolio, which may have weak effects. So I think it's to me, it's a conceptually and intuitively strong enough idea that that even if the effect is weak, I'd still probably include it in my portfolio. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, our observation is that the sharp ratio of a diversified futures skew strategy is on the same order as what we observe for diversified carry and diversified trend, and that the correlation is somewhere in the neighborhood of 0.3, 0.4 relative to both trend and carry. So it acts as a reasonably nice diversifier in the portfolio. Just again, along this theme of adding reliable small edges, which when you apply those small edges to a sufficiently diversified basket of instruments and in complement to one another, can actually produce a, a reasonably strong long-term performance profile. The only the only note of caution I'd strike is that if you've got volat- short volatility in your portfolio, and I guess equities to a to a lesser degree, but by including carry in your portfolio and trend following in your portfolio that's allocating to volatility, and then including negative skew, because these things will all, unless you're doing it on a kind of normalized time series basis, we're only looking at the skew or the carry or the momentum relative to history of that asset or relative to the asset class, perhaps, you're probably going to increase your exposure to the short vol factor or the equity factor, whatever you want to call it. Just make it the strategy more pro-cyclical in general. Yeah, exactly. So as long as you don't ever do that, I mean, obviously, that's a source of return and that's good, right? So short vol, these things are all, in a way, proxies um, for the latent factor of short volatility. And so you're picking up short volatility in various different ways. I think as long as your risk management can understand and control for that, then it's fine, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, a really, really good point. Well, listen, Rob, I've had you now for about an hour and 40 minutes, which has just been magnificent. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. And I know that our listeners are in for a real treat. So thanks again. Enjoy your evening and let's keep in touch. You too, Adam. Nice to talk to you. Okay. Have a great one. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.